0: Hello, I'm Stephen Bernstein, Global Chair of McDermott Health. I'd like to welcome our regular listeners to our Governing Health podcast series, in addition to those of you listening to us for the first time. Each month, our partner, Michael Peregrine, welcomes a new guest into the studio to discuss some of the most pressing matters facing boards of directors, with particular focus on health and life sciences organizations. On behalf of the Health Practice Group at McDermott, it's a pleasure to have you join us.
1: Hello again and welcome. I'm your host, Michael Peregrine. We're pleased to have you with us. Today's conversation focuses on executive compensation, always a keyboard topic, and one made even more relevant by the provisions of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act and several other governance trends. The evolution of the new tax bill has a significant focus on nonprofit sector executive compensation. It's not been just the imposition of the new excise tax, but focus has also been on those provisions that didn't make themselves into the final version, including a proposed repeal of the rebuttable presumption of reasonableness. In addition, issues associated with pay equity, the use of clawbacks in executive comp arrangements, and the expanding universe of incentive compensation goals and objectives are very much a part of the broader discussion beyond basic matters of reasonableness. So the board's compensation committee continues to have a very full plate on its table. And to help our comp committee listeners address these and other issues, we're joined today by two well-known national experts on nonprofit health industry executive compensation. Tim Cotter really needs no introduction, as many of you have worked with him and his firm Sullivan Cotter & Associates of which he's chairman. With over 40 years of consulting experience, Tim's knowledge of the healthcare field is extensive, having assisted more than 400 healthcare organizations with board, executive, physician, and staff compensation matters. My partner, Ralph DeYoung, is also well known to many of you as one of the leading national thought leaders in executive and physician comp and benefits for nonprofit organizations, with a special focus on healthcare systems. Tim and Ralph, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you. Good
1: to be with you. Ralph, we're roughly four months into the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act with all of its provisions impacting executive comp. What's been the effect on the front lines from what you see?
2: Well, compensation committees, boards, Senior management. They have been wrestling for these past few months with the impact, particularly of the 21% excise tax on compensation over a million dollars paid to any member of the five highest paid employees of the organization in any year after 2016. The most important work that the boards and their committees have done is to assess the impact of that tax and to project how and when it will hit the organization and its payment of compensation, particularly taking into account large fluctuations of pay coming up over the next few years, as happens with incentive compensation awards, the vesting of supplemental retirement benefits, and other significant, perhaps one-off payments made to the highest paid executive employees of the organization. But organizations, even more so, are wondering and waiting for guidance on some key technical issues, particularly under this 21% excise tax, such as the excise tax applies to taxable years beginning after 2017. Is that the taxable year of the organization paying the compensation, which for a fiscal year organization might mean that the tax wouldn't even come into play yet for compensation now being provided if their fiscal year hasn't begun yet? Or does it mean the taxable year of the individual receiving the compensation, which would be the calendar year? So organizations are wondering whether they're still payments that would be made yet this year that would not be subject to that tax and they might accelerate some of those payments if they find out that they have that kind of flexibility another open issue is that for hospital systems that have physicians serving in meaningful executive leadership roles the compensation provided to a medical professional for the performance of medical services is not counted, is not included, in determining this excise tax. That means that for a physician who serves in a dual role of providing medical services and providing some form of administrative, leadership, executive services, that there will need to be some kind of allocation of that compensation to determine what portion of it might be subject to this tax. We don't know yet how that will be defined for this purpose. So we're awaiting guidance in that area as well. And in the meantime, organizations are starting to think about how do we allocate somebody's compensation in different areas of services being provided, whether that's academic, teaching, research, uh, leadership, perhaps medico-administrative services, and then just plain clinical, patient-facing medical services.
1: We've got eight months left in the year, in the calendar year from when we're taping this today. What's the IRS's timetable? What are they telling folks about when they're going to be coming out with technical advice? Or what do we know about the reporting mechanism on any of this?
2: The IRS has acknowledged that there is a strong need for immediate guidance in a lot of these areas. But that's true for many aspects of the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. It's not just the 21% excise tax. And of course the IRS is gearing up and expects to provide guidance over the next few months in many areas. We just don't know when that guidance will be provided in any particular area like this 21% excise tax. But we can expect that it will be coming out in pieces over the next few months. And included with that will be guidance on how this tax gets calculated and reported in early 2019, which would be the earliest time at which the tax would be due. And this kind of information will will need to be disclosed and reported.
1: Tim, you know, there was a lot of consternation amongst professional advisors like lawyers and accountants and comp consultants as we watch the sausage of the tax act being made last December you know the policy considerations was this punitive uh, was it an attempt to take significant benefits away from nonprofit executives how has this been considered what's been the reaction amongst the compensation committee members that you work with how do they view this
0: Well, it's very early. But, you know, right now, my experience, experience of my colleagues has been that among, you know, not-for-profit health systems, we don't see anyone uh, reducing or moderating their compensation in light of uh, excise taxes. It's simply being viewed as a cost of doing business. Now, when and if excise tax liabilities grow because the covered employee population grows, it, it might be a different story. What we do see committees looking at carefully is considering revisions to their compensation program uh, design in response to the excise tax rules, not to uh, necessarily avoid taxation, but to make sure that the taxation they're receiving is fair. So, for example, taking a very close look at cliff vesting type programs and trying to minimize lump sums so that we have more even compensation uh, over time. Aligning vesting schedules so that you don't have one or two executives getting a large deferred compensation payment one year going into the cover. A covered group and a covered employee once, a covered employee always and then having the next year a couple more and a couple more so that you suddenly have uh, very large uh, groups of covered employees finally we see people giving some thought not that i would necessarily recommend it but giving some thought to looking at split dollar life insurance policies as a way to minimize uh, excise taxes so those would be three areas that we're seeing uh, committees take a look at as they respond to uh, the new tax bill
2: and I'll add one more. Uh, I, what we've seen are organizations that have paid their executives through different organizations that are related to each other or, or having multiple payrolls, uh, multiple employers. We've seen them consolidate their executive payrolls uh, into one organization or one payroll so as to minimize the number of new five highest compensated employees who might join the group of covered employees in future years.
1: Tim, I want to get to you uh, in a second about what you're seeing from the market generally and the environmental impact, but Ralph, let me ask a question. You, Tim and I, have always been focused on and interested in the whole concept of director compensation. How much more difficult, how much more work is this for the Executive Compensation Committee, and does it justify a stipend? What what have you seen so far?
2: Well, I'll go first on this and, and then Tim can jump in. Uh, with his experience, I've seen the work of the compensation committee steadily increasing and knowing about and dealing with the ramifications of the excise tax is adding just a little bit more to their plate. It means that they need to know more than ever about supplemental retirement plans, how they vest, when they're paid out, they need to do more projecting of compensation, and when those amounts will be paid out. They need to do more trend work, looking at trends of compensation and projecting that forward. So they need to think bigger picture over multiple years and not be focused solely on what's happening right in front of them at any given point in time. So I would say that the work of the committee has gotten more complex and a much bigger job uh, than ever before. And whether that justifies compensation, I think that the the work was so big as to justify compensation
1: before this occurred. Now it's only gotten more uh, complex. Tim, is it getting harder to find people to serve on the comp committee? Um, I think it is, especially with the, some of the
0: political, you know, connotations that executive comp is taking on, and I think is our industry transforms and as uh, tough decisions may need to be made about the downsizing of employment populations um, with uh, executive compensation so widely published, I think it will be uh, even more challenging to get
1: strong members uh, on that committee. You know, sticking with this theme, one of the points that folks have made, I think Ralph has talked about this in his public comments, is the potential that the uh, comp provisions of the Tax Act will affect the talent market and may create uh, an uneven playing field in the recruitment and retention of qualified executives. Are you beginning to see any of that? At this time,
0: the attraction and retention of key health care executives, especially those directly involved uh, with clinical integration and transforming of the health care system, is a uh, at a, a level of great uh, difficulty, as we look at the new tax law that has a reduction in state and local tax deductions, that certainly is going to complicate the job in uh, states like New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, California, Massachusetts, which also, in the major urban areas, also have very high uh, housing prices. So I think the the answer to the question is it will create more difficulty with the attraction retention of key executives. On the other hand, uh, such areas have always had a great difficulty, and more importantly, uh, executives move for a variety of reasons, not simply economic uh, purposes. And so I think organizations uh, will be challenged, but I think they will have other aspects behind besides raw economics to persuade uh, candidates. Uh, to come or stay with their organization.
2: And I would say that um, there are aspects of the new tax act that, that are having an impact on recruitment of executive talent. Believe it or not, it's organizations with a large state tax burden, uh, a high marginal rate for taxes um, that are having a little bit more of a challenge, not only because of the taxes that are paid, but now the limit on deductibility of state and local taxes um, beyond the $10,000 limit that now applies. Uh, That is now being factored in by executives as they look at opportunities in states where they would be impacted by that level uh, or that limit on deductibility. I'd say beyond that, it's not really the excise tax that is limiting or hampering the recruitment of executives. It's really the complexity of the job, the complexity of the organizations, and the high competition for executive talent in for-profit industries that is having an impact on recruitment of executives. And of course, having to compete with for-profit industries only puts that excise tax into greater play when you've got to pay well over a million dollars to find the right executive talent in an area that is uh, keenly a competitive area with for-profits.
1: Ralph, as I recall, isn't there a glitch in the tax bill that uh, creates a certain amount of inequity with respect to uh, the tax exempt hospital sector if they are competing for talent against, say, a health care system that is controlled by a private equity firm or a private company that is not a public company uh, and is not subject to the corporate tax?
2: Well, I think what you're alluding to is the fact that one of the stated rationales for the 21% excise tax is to put tax-exempt organizations on par with the for-profit world. But really, they're being put on par with the limit on deductibility that exists in public companies. And for taxable organizations that are not public companies, They don't have that same kind of limitation, and uh, they don't have to either pay a 21% tax or lose a deduction on the payment of compensation at that level. Uh, And it does end up uh, skewing that competitive playing field.
1: Let's pause to revisit a theme we've discussed from time to time before in the podcast, and that's the effectiveness of the Board's conflicts of interest policies. Many health systems are expanding their portfolio to invest in new ventures focused on alternative forms of delivery across the continuum of care and on specialized health industry technology. These ventures may involve the health system with a diverse set of investment partners ranging from other healthcare systems to individual investors and as sophisticated private and public companies, among others. From a conflicts of interest perspective, the question becomes whether the health system's existing policies, disclosure questionnaire, and conflicts review protocol are good enough to flag the kinds of conflicts that could arise from these types of complex new investments. Going forward, The conflicts process may need to do more than look across the street, but also down the block, around the corner, and down the next block for arrangements that could create an actual or potential conflict. It may also need to re-examine the approach it takes to developing and monitoring conflicts management plans with respect to board-approved arrangements. And now back to our conversation on executive compensation with Tim Cotter and Ralph DeYoung. Let's pivot for a moment and talk about a couple of things that I'm seeing on my side of the boardroom table, and that is an increasing interest in adding goals, compliance goals, workforce oversight goals, uh, other kinds of cultural and performance goals, on to the incentive compensation arrangement of the executive. Tim, what are you seeing in terms of, you know, in in essence, is there more paper for Performance aspects of compensation popping up in the nonprofit world?
0: Well, I you know, if you look at the at the practice, I mean annual incentive programs are now the norm in not-for-profit health care. So whether they're hospitals or health systems, at least an 80% prevalence, and the larger the entity, you know, the higher the prevalence. We're seeing a significant increase in the use of long-term incentive plans or incentives that cover multiple year periods. And among uh, larger health systems, so those with uh, revenues over a billion, prevalence today is 32%, and among uh, health systems with revenues over 3 billion, uh, prevalence is uh, greater than 50%. So we're certainly seeing a real focus on incentive plans. So what's going on with the measures, and this is where I think we have to have a balancing uh, act. We're asking for increased emphasis on reputational and value-based metrics. So clinical quality, service experience, access, affordability. So that's going on. On the other hand, we're also getting pushed to have measures that deal with whether it's workforce culture, health disparities. They're just more measures. And so I think you come down to the issue if we have too many objectives perhaps we really have none so i think the real challenge for the compensation committee is how do we balance the growing number of operational and transformational priorities uh, that the not-for-profit hospital or health system has with a a scorecard that is manageable and addressable by the executive population. So I think we really need a balancing act there, and I think we're pushing toward almost too many measures.
1: Out of curiosity, it kind of begs the question, who on the staff is monitoring these measurements for the CEO? Who, who runs the numbers? Who's got the time? And, and who are they beholden to? What have you seen?
0: Well, I think a couple things are going on. I said, one, I think we're starting to see organizations, large organizations, have measurement people. And so their jobs are, one, to take a look at some of the emerging data sets that are out there and to build peer groups out of those those data sets that relate to the peer groups that the compensation committee is using for Uh, pay information for the executive team. And then secondly, those people have teams and as part of the organizational improvement efforts, the performance monitoring efforts, data are being produced on a more centralized basis than they historically have. So there's a great deal of variation across the industry, but in my experience, the strongest performing health systems have groups that are producing the type of performance measurement data that the senior team and the board considers critical that that's being produced on a standardized and repeatable basis and I think that drives eventually into the compensation system.
1: Tim, to what extent do you see an increasing need for the compensation committee and the executive search and succession committee to be talking more? I
0: think that uh, in our experience this is now becoming a major focus point of the Contemporary Health System Board. In many of our clients, the succession planning is dealt with by the Compensation Committee. Where there is a separate committee, I think they would need to work uh, closely together uh, to make sure that the devices that would be needed to attract and support both the development and then the the ultimate retention uh, of these individuals uh, is well addressed by the compensation plan.
2: I would uh, totally agree with that Tim. I think that succession planning and executive talent development and having people ready for various executive spots not just the CEO but for the rest of the team is a tricky and delicate issue but one that compensation committees uh, or another committee of the board are increasingly focused on.
1: Before we wrap up, I want to ask Ralph, and then maybe come back and get your perspective, Tim, on a couple of factors that have been historically prominent in the for-profit world and whether they have any relative value in the non-profit world. And, Ralph, one of those is the concept of clawbacks, and and second is the concept of pay equity. Uh, What are you seeing comp committees do in that regard? Are you seeing them consider clawback provisions in executive compensation arrangements? And are you seeing or advising committees to consider generally, even though they're not obligated to, uh, broader issues of pay equity within the organization? Two different issues.
2: I do see uh, compensation committees looking at and using and putting in their incentive plans and other programs, clawback provisions. In this day and age of um, various uh, scandals occurring across many types of industries. Compensation committees are aware that there may be some very unusual circumstances in which it might be appropriate to claw back somebody's compensation because of something they've done, or probably more likely because of things that happened with the financial statements of the organization or the way in which incentive compensation was calculated. So compensation committees are becoming more demanding in that sense. And compensation committees are becoming more sophisticated. When you talk about pay equity, committees, and I'm, I'm really quite excited about this, because from my experience, committees are not only taking the kind of broader multi-year view that I talked about earlier, but are developing a stronger and more sophisticated sense of equity in terms of internal pay equity, gender equity, um, looking at performance across um, many lines and developing dashboards of important social metrics, important performance metrics of the organization and uh, many ways of looking at how the organization and its executive team are doing. Organizations like Sullivan Cotter are helping A lot of these committees develop much more sophisticated uh, dashboard metrics than ever before so that committees are looking not only at pure compensation data but are looking at a very wide range of data to determine are we not only equitable but are we in a very core sense are we performing our tax-exempt mission are we consistent with our tax-exempt values are we driving organizational performance with our compensation program? Is this really serving the purpose that our compensation program, at its essence, needs to serve?
1: Need to show the difference between the for-profits and the non-profits. Tim, what do you important? important.
0: I would agree with 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 Ralph. I, I think, in my experience. Um, compensation Committees today, at a minimum every few years, want some assessment done for any evidence of, uh, of, of discriminatory uh, pay practices. They increasingly look at longitudinal data to look up, look at the makeup of their workforce and their executive workforce uh, in particular. And then the Compensation Committee as it relates to the um, Uh, The executive team uh, is oftentimes taking a look at what are the compensation differences in these categories, you know, versus the relative uh, organizational level they're at and against the target market positions uh for the for their jobs. So if you in my experience these issues today are top of mind uh for all compensation committees. The other one that I think is becoming more top of mind though is the concern of what are we spending on our executive populations and as we're adding new jobs and so on again taking a look over time what's the size of our executive payroll? What is it as a percentage of our expenses or our net operating revenue? How is it changing over time? Uh, How have our market positions changed uh, over time? At what levels are we paying incentives over time? Why are our incentives always above target? These are the type of, I think, cost issues uh, that historically have not been a a great focus because we've been a fairly strong industry. But again, with the financial pressures we're facing, I'd see that's another area where I think compensation committees are heavily focused today.
1: Well, Tim, Ralph, this has been terrific, and I'm sure our listeners enjoyed it very much. Let's plan on getting together at the end of the year to see, for example, Ralph, if the IRS has given us any guidance, and Tim, whether or not you're seeing any further clarification of these trends. Thanks again, fellows, very much. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Let's pivot for a moment to our regular short segment, What's Trending Now, when we try to flag a new governance issue we see on the horizon. And for me, that's the potential for health system boards to become more involved in efforts to protect the system's employed physician base from recruitment by the new age competitors, the insurance companies, pharmacy companies, and Silicon Valley disruptors among them that are building their own network of physicians to integrate with core health business lines. Employed physician recruitment and retention activity requires close board oversight because of the various regulatory and quality concerns. New health system initiatives to protect its employed physician base will likely require the coordinated oversight of the board's strategic, compliance, and physician compensation committees. Board and executive leadership should work together to anticipate this need. As Tim and Ralph have suggested, the work of the Executive Compensation Committee continues to expand. The full board can support this important governance work by confirming the appropriateness of the committee charter, assuring sufficient staff support to the committee, continuing to appoint highly qualified members to serve on the committee, and supporting the satisfaction of the rebuttable presumption of reasonableness, among other steps. Thanks so much for joining us for today's episode of Governing Health. Be sure to subscribe to the full complimentary podcast series. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. There you'll be able to stay up to date with all of our future episodes and to re-listen to the old ones. Until then, I'm your host, Michael Peregrin, saying thanks so much for listening.
2: 18, McDermott, Will & Emery. All rights reserved. Any use of these materials including reproduction, modification, distribution, or republication without the prior written consent of McDermott, Will & Emery is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.